Hi, everyone. Welcome to the MBA Insider Podcast. I am your host, Al D, and the author of MBA Insider. This podcast is for career-driven professionals looking for advice on how to grow their careers by leveraging the skills, experiences, and knowledge gained from an MBA degree. In each episode, I'll give you a look into the business school experience, along with practical tips, career advice, and real-life stories to help professionals grow their careers. Welcome to the MBA Insider Podcast. My name is Al D. I'm the host of the MBA Insider Podcast and the founder of MBAschool.com. Uh, today, I'm excited because I'm joined by Kay He, who is the founder of Rad Reads. I'm excited to talk to Kay today because I feel like this topic is really going to resonate with our audience. Kay runs the Rad Reads community, and he also um, talks a lot and writes a lot and thinks a lot about kind of the intersection of career productivity and honestly, just really trying to live a meaningful uh, and worthwhile life. I know something that's top of mind for all of our listeners, but in particular, I think that some of the things that I've taken away from reading Kay's work as well as talking with him already has just been just around productivity can be great, but as needs to be thoughtful about what you try to be productive towards. And unless you can really get to the root of that, whether it's trying to figure out how to be the most productive in your career search or um, even your job or whatever it is, unless you actually do the deep work of figuring out what that is and, and how to actually allocate your time in the best way, you might uh, not necessarily love uh, the journey and the outcomes along the way. But what we're going to do first is we're going to talk to Kay a little bit about his journey before we get into all that. So first and foremost, Kay, thanks for, for joining me today. It's great. Great to have you on. I'm really excited to, to jump in, but I always start with a warm-up question. And so my warm-up question to you, Kay, is talk to me about a memorable or favorite childhood memory from when you were a kid growing up. You know, what was something that really, as you look back upon, you just look back upon really fondly or you just smile about from growing up? Well, first, Al, thank you. It's been a pleasure getting uh, to, to know you and hello to all of your incredible listeners. So I'm going to answer with two, two questions. I'm going to answer with twice. The first, without a doubt, landing my first kickflip. So for those of you who don't know skateboarding, a kickflip is when you're riding and then you flip the board 360 degrees and then you land on it. Depending on your level of skill, it could take anywhere from like one to three years to learn how to do it. And it's just one of the most satisfying feelings. So I'll be the first one. Second is a little nerdier and it's actually, they're, they're loosely tied and we can talk about why they're loosely tied. The second one was I just... I liked to figure out games and decipher games. And one of the games that I, in hindsight, really deciphered at a young age was entrepreneurship. And I remember teaching myself HTML. So this is like 1995, 28.8 modems still, teaching myself HTML, which is the language you use to make web pages, and then pitching my parents' friends on why they needed websites. And so I built this web design I mean, that's a strong word, but I built web pages for people using HTML, mostly through my parents' friends. And I saved up a ton of money in like junior high, sophomore through senior year. And then I invested it in the S&P 500. And to this day, I'm 42 and a half years old. I still haven't sold those shares. That's amazing. And it's, it is, it, it's such a, what a prescient uh, kid for, <laughs> I guess, in that regard, but what you know, a loser. Oh, that'd be an alternative. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, listen, I was, I was trying to give you the benefit of the doubt, but it's still kind of cool. And I guess 
it was funny because the, the next thing I was going to ask you about is to, to, to talk about a little bit about your career, but I guess it makes sense how you, you ended up at least how you started your career after you graduated college based off of what you did when you were in, in junior high. But I guess let's talk a little bit about that. So I know you went to Yale for undergrad. What did you do after you graduated uh, without, you know, tell, giving yeah. too much away? I already kind of teed it up, but talk to me about that. Absolutely. I'll step back briefly and just say, you know, I was this, don't let the skateboard in fool you. I was more HTML than skateboarder. So like nerdy, insecure, skinny child of first generation immigrants whose parents basically said, get on the track and you'll be happy. You'll have a stable job. You'll make money. You'll have a recognizable career. You'll be happy. And so all of my life, I was very insecure uh, and shy and all of my adult adolescence was kind of to execute that plan. So I went to Yale, I majored in computer science because I thought it would make me the most money. I double majored in economics because that was the backup plan. And then in 2001, the banks, investment banks descended upon campus and they started recruiting for investment banking. And I knew nothing about investment banking. My, my, I didn't grow up like talking to my dad about stocks or we didn't talk about markets. And it was funny because like, I, I, yeah, I had a lot of friends whose parents were investment bankers and like they just talk about stocks when they were 12. Like that, that did not happen in my family. And so these banks come down and they're like, we're going to give you these massive signing bonus. At the time, it felt massive. And you'll work like 80 to 100 hours a week, but it will set you up for an incredible career. So I took the bait uh, and I didn't get into one of the top tier investment banks. I got into probably what was a second tier investment bank. And so I started my career in, in invest banking. Yeah. And just thinking back, you talked a little bit about this, but the word that I heard was secure, right? And really trying to optimize some decisions that you made around, you know, having security in your life, you know, particularly through the means of a career. Could you say a little bit more about that and how it manifested as you mm -hmm. thought about your own kind of decisions or even how you approached your own kind of career decisions or, or yeah. you know, like right in the first couple of years out of, out of college? My parents, as I said, are our first generation Cambodian immigrants with a dash of French and my mom. And they came to New York with no, no money, li limited money, no friends, barely spoke the language. And my dad had a job at the UN. And so a lot of my, so they were, they weren't struggling, but they were, you know, we were like lower middle class, middle class, but they were just kind of always nervous about money, rightfully so. And so we kind of internalized that. The other thing is I grew up in New York City, middle class in the 80s and 90s. Like, I'm sure there are a lot of people here living in New York, listening that live in New York. New York is a very different place in the 80s or 90s. And I always put this in perspective that like, you could be walking in Central Park and just be mugged at knife point. And that wasn't like, like a crazy, occur that wasn't like blasphemous. Like it's a tragic a tragedy that it would happen, but that was actually happened semi-regularly. And so as this shy kid that always felt like his outsider, it was really skinny and small, like thin. And I just always felt scared for like physical safety. Right. And I had been jumped a few times by, you know, older kids stolen my backpack, my Jansport backpack, you know, like things like that. So the first concept of safety, it's like a very mass in hindsight, very Maslow's hierarchy was like, how can I be physically safe? Then once I kind of like, we were more middle-class and then I started earning income from HTML. Then it was like, well, how do I ensure that I never go back to that place? Which would, I don't even know what that 
meant, but like getting fired, losing it all, like taking too much risk. And so for so much of that kind of early part of my career, it was like, you know, I was getting paid well on Wall Street. It was just like, get a lot, you know, get a big paycheck, save, invest, get a lot of paycheck, save, invest, and like kind of rinse and repeat. And there were a lot of positive benefits in that, in that, you know, I was able to generate a sizable investment portfolio at a relatively young age. And I think that, I think a lot of people, particularly those who are immigrants or come from families of immigrants can definitely resonate with a lot of what you said. You know, my parents, my dad grew, lived, grew up here in the United States, but you know, his, his, his family was from China and, and they spoke, you know, they didn't speak any English. And so he very, even though he lived in the United States his whole life and definitely had some, you know, immigrant thought lines in his childhood and, and growing up. And my mom was an immigrant and came to the United States you know, when she was going to college. And so even though I've lived my whole life in the United States and my dad did as well, we very much had some of those you know, types of things, even though we were fortunate enough to, to live in a, a decent neighborhood. But that definitely is something that I have thought about a lot and have understood to be a, a key mindset for me in terms of some of the decisions that I've made in my life and also in my career. So I can definitely relate to that. I know other people, immigrants and non-immigrants, can, I've, I've talked to over the years, have, have said that's you know it, it, it's something that they've, thought about as well. But clearly the first part of your career or the first kind of chapter or two chapters of your career, it kind of worked out. You know, you were working in finance and things were going, you know, well, but talk to me a little bit more about how that went. And then the the big event was eventually you left. And so yes. talk, talk a little bit more about that. Yes. So I did invest back. I actually quit after 18 months. And I moved into kind of an ancillary or a different investment management business called Fund to Hedge Funds. It was at, at the time, it was a new-ish industry. Hedge funds were, I mean, hedge funds still are, but hedge funds were the rage. And this, you know, side industry was really benefiting from the growth of the hedge fund industry. So I did that and kind of same playbook, right? Put my head down and we should talk. Like, to me, I figure, I feel like I understood a lot of the games that were being played on Wall Street and we can double click into that if that's relevant. But I kind of figured it out, work hard, um, build good relationships, be eager, learn, raise your hand to take on new challenges. And that worked out really well for me. A few notable milestones. I think the big one was at 31, I was promoted to managing director at BlackRock, which is one of the highest, it's the highest title. I mean, there's the C-suite above that but it's the highest title that you can earn without being, you know, in leadership. And so things were going great, but you know, I was 31. I had this title. It was a thing that I thought I wanted my whole life. I was like, this is what I want. And I just started to look around and a few things were off. The first one I was look at people that were 10 years older than me and they had great lives. Like they had the big suburban house, two X fives, kids went to private school, like, you know, summer house and the hampoons, whatever. I'm like, I don't want that. And I don't know. It's not that I think that's bad. It's not a judgment on them, but it wasn't for me. So that was the first thing. The second thing was I love the internet and I just love everything about it. social and building stuff and HTML and, and crypto even. And I just had all these little tiny projects. They weren't meant to be businesses. They weren't, this was before we even called them side hustles. They were just fun, creative, internet-enabled projects. And they brought me so much enjoyment. And sometimes I'd be like, hey guys, 
should we like organize our data a bit better? They'd be like, stop talking. Like, what a waste to get back to investing, you know? Or like, hey, there's this thing called crypto. Like, can we spend like five minutes talking about it in our meeting? They're like, ah, it's a fraud. I'm like, all right, I'll just go buy some, you know, 10 years ago and look, let's talk now. So I just, the closed mindedness of the industry was bothering me. And then the third was that it was a very zero sum game industry where there's this fundamental, this like, foundational belief that for one person to win, another person has to lose. And you pair that with an industry that's predominantly insecure men, myself included, and it just leads, that's a very combustible mix, right? Where you think you're like, someone's always trying to gun for your job, gun for your ex, gun for your Y, and you kind of, your starting place is mild insecurity. It's a combustible, flammable um, situation that honestly, I was getting old enough that I was kind of like, I don't want I don't want to be around these people. I had so many other social groups that were uplifting, positive some games. I just, I'm like, is it absurd for me to think that the, there can be a professional landscape that's not so zero sum based or negative sum based? And so all these things intrigued me. And then the other thing happened was that like every year, there's a running joke, when's the best time to leave Wall Street after next year's bonus? And so every year I'd be like, yeah, one more year, one more year, one more year. And finally I was like, you know what? Having a kid, really crystallized it. So you might be tempted to say that like, you had a kid, like your risk aversion should go up, not down. But I had a kid and, and then it, having a kid really crystallizes the passage of time. Cause like my whole, like from like 26 to 32 is just like a giant blur, right? It was like dating girlfriend, my wife now going out to dinners, parties, socializing, all that stuff. Once you have a kid, you're like, Oh, first birthday. Like, whoa, it's been a year, second birthday. Oh, now they can have a conversation with you. It really puts the passage of time into clear perspective versus these like six year chunks where you're like, oh, I guess six years just went by. And that's when I was like, you know what? I need to eject. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just knew I didn't want to stay in finance. I knew that I wanted to do something that aligned with my creative internet pursuits, but I didn't have an idea. I didn't have funding. And I just said, you know what, I'm going to, I had saved up a bunch of money. I'd said, I'm going to take 18 months of my savings and put it in a different account and see what happens. I'm going to try stuff for, and then if it goes to zero, I'll raise my hand and say, I was an idiot. I messed up. I'll go back. And if not, I will, who knows what will happen. And so that was the turning point. That was at age 35, seven years ago. There, there's a lot there that I want to talk about and unpack. So the first thing that you mentioned was taking a look at the people who were a couple rungs above you in, in the role that you were in or on the quote unquote trajectory you were on and, and realizing that that wasn't something that appealed to you. And one of the things having worked in consulting, grow, you know, growing up in the firm, one of the things they always, they always encourage you to do is look at the, the folks who are maybe one or two or three levels above you and, and, and really ask yourself, do you, do you want that life? And mm -hmm. That was something that really always stuck with me. And I, I kind of have this framework for this. It's, it's, it's just called the, the give get ratio, right? And so mm -hmm. for everything that you have, any job you have, any career you have or anything in life, like there's things that you give, give up to, to, to do that job. And there's things that you get in return. And the, the goal is to figure out kind of the ratio that, that works for you in, at any given time. And, and that can change as it sounds like it may have for you once you, you know, did have a kid, but the the key thing for me was always understanding what that give get ratio was and being clear about the the factors that went into it but also one of my big 
aha moments was realizing and taking a look at the give get ratio for the folks who were a couple levels above me and realizing that was probably never going to work for me on, on the path that, that I was going on. And that is not a criticism of, of them. It, it, everyone yeah. has their own and the goal is to come up with your own, but that was an aha moment for me to figure out, okay, well, if, if that's not going to work for me, then, then, then what is. So that was the first thing I wanted to say. And then yeah. the second thing I was going to say too, to that was just around, just, you mentioned you always had these side projects or just things mm -hmm. and just would love to know also just about that, because yeah. I think to your point, I, I think you kind of said it there too. It wasn't necessarily a side hustle. It was these things, but I think a lot of times people jump to like, oh, I need a side hustle or like, mm -hmm. oh, I should be doing these things, but we'd love for you to maybe say more about that because I think there's a lot that's there and mm -hmm. I would love for you to, to talk through some of those, those, Absolutely. those things. So in terms of the, the people who are older than me, there, there were a few things that were very poignant. One was they were, they were never able to disconnect. Yeah. So no matter what, you were always tethered to your phone. And I'm, I just like, there's gotta be a life where that's just, and it was cultural. Like it wasn't even necessary for the work to happen. Sure. And please keep in mind listeners that this was before, way before remote work and COVID. So like, like we're talking Blackberry days here. So it says yeah. the dinosaur. So that was the first one is like, you're always connected. I'm like, that seems kind of weird. And it was fake connection. So that was the first issue. The second issue was family time was secondary. And it was just like little things. Like, I just wanted to eat dinner with my kids. And I'm happy to work after, but like, no, you can't eat dinner with your kids because that's just the way the schedule works, right? Or you can't leave in the middle of the day to go to a recital because that, you, you know, you just calls all day, meetings all day. And I'm just like, like, guys, I'm willing to do the work, but just a little flexibility so I could like put my family, not even first, but like, you know, adjacent, that would be nice. So those were like some of the, the kind of trade-offs and I'm like, this doesn't, this doesn't feel right to me. I think another one, and this is a personal one, is that I realized that I don't like specialization. I, I kind of think of my career as like sprints where it's like, let's do five, something for like five to seven years and get really good at it. And then kind of, I get bored. I didn't know it at the time, but I get bored of doing the same thing. And so I needed a career that like, had variety in the type of work that it entailed. So those are like kind of when I think of that kind of give, get rich. And the get, what was I getting was like money. Like that was, that was the, that was kind of the old, that's not true. There's money and there was intellectual challenge. I, I, what I miss about um, Wall Street is that there's a ton of intellectual rigor and you can look at things like, you know, right now we're in a geopolitical crisis and you could really start to analyze like, well, how you think, you know, second and third order effects. So it's a very intellectually rigorous environment, which I really enjoyed. So to your second question, what were the side hustles? So again, let's put some dates around this just to put some context, right? This is around the global financial crisis. So like 2008, 2007, 2009. And so like web 2.0 was just starting to really take shape, right? The iPhone came out, I believe in 2007. So some of the projects that I did were, there was a lot of like, like I had a secret Tumblr blog that wrote about culture in New York city. And like, I had no, none of my wall street friends wanted to talk about culture in New York city. Right. It's not their kind of, it was like streetwear and, you know, indie rock and hip hop. And so I had this, and it was very sensitive there. You couldn't attach your name to anything public. So it was all anonymous. I started tweeting. And I just really enjoyed the, like the communities and the friendships that I made on Twitter, again, anonymous tweeting. 
I came up, I was obsessed. I think a lot of entrepreneurs, like entrepreneurs start with this idea that there needs to be a better CRM, like customer relationship management software. So I was obsessed with like building a new CRM. And so I hacked together this old like Google Sheets with like a ton of nested if statements and macros to like try to make it simulate basically like what Airtable became, the database product. And then I had a bunch of like random business. Oh, I organized a lot of dinners, like networking, like inter intra industry networking dinners. I, I love live events. Uh, so those were all, those were like the types of things. And there was always like this belief that, oh, maybe this thing could be a business. Like, oh, maybe this networking dinner thing could become a business, but it never was the thing. I didn't have enough time to even consider making them businesses. They were just fun projects that were like intellectually stimulating and put me in rooms with interesting people. That that's great. And as you, you, when you quit, talk to me a little bit about that in terms of when did it happen? What came next and how did you end up using that 18 months? Mm -hmm. So I, I probably, I had been thinking of quitting for like two to three years and I kind of fell in that bonus trap. One more bonus, one more bonus, one more bonus. But I think when my daughter turned one, I'm like, okay, you know, you start to see like in four years, they'll go to kindergarten and that kind of, lit, you know, one kid not in kindergarten, you're still super mobile. Like you could live wherever you want. You could travel all the time, like if you didn't have a job. And so like, oh, there's a season of life here. It's like the one kid not in school season of life. Let's look like, what are we going to do with it? Right. You only get it once. And so... When I quit, I finally just had the courage. And I think there was a very powerful realization that I think a lot of your listeners will resonate with is that I quit knowing that if I didn't succeed, I could just get a, another job. And I know that that sounds so trivial when said out loud, but for people who are considering it, they think that, and I thought this too, that you'll be banished from the industry or your skills will disintegrate like so rapidly, or people will view you as some whack job. That's probably the, the biggest risk is that people think you're, if you pursue something that makes you happy, people think you're crazy. And that's a lot of projection, I suspect. It was really important for me to know that like, I could get another, I could get another job in finance today, seven years later, if I want. It wouldn't be the same job. It might have a little bit more grunt work might be for less money, but I can get a job. So that risk was off the table. So once that risk was off the table, I quit and I just wanted to really let things emerge, right? I think of it more like a garden where I wanted to, I had planted a bunch of seeds and during those 18 months, I was going to continue to plant more seeds and water them and see what would happen during that 18 month period. First thing I did, I quit and got on the plane with a family, a dream of ours to live abroad. And so we lived abroad for like two months in mostly Bali and Singapore. So very cliched, Julia Roberts, eat, pray, love, family, you know, Cambodian immigrant style edition with kids. And we lived in Bali and it was, I surfed, just hung out on the beach, drank, smoked, like, you know, just do what you do there. And then the plan was always to eventually come back. We didn't like give up our apartment in New York. The plan was to come back and start like working on things. But that's when I had had one of these projects was this little email newsletter. And this newsletter actually started while I was working at BlackRock. 
but I knew that I was going to quit. But again, it was just in the category of interesting side project where I just found five interesting stories and I sent them to 36 people. That was it. You know, there's like 9 million sub stacks that do this now, but in 2015, there weren't that many people that did that. And so people thought it was cool and they could tell that I was, you know, into it. So they could see my enthusiasm for it. And they were just like, can you do this more? Keep doing this. This is cool. Why are you doing it? I like this. Can I send it to my friend? And again, I was in the seed planting, not monetization phase, but I was like, this is cool. Like I'm onto something. People like this. I like it. That was an important thing. One of my mantras for those 18 months was follow the fun mm. and only do things that I found fun. And I could seem kind of indulgent, especially when you're quote unquote on the clock. But in hindsight, it got me to such incredible places because my passion was so invested in everything that I was doing. And to use a cliche, like work felt like play. Now, granted, that work wasn't really generating much income. I mean, no income. I was burning through savings, the 18-month plan. But at least there was an anchor. The newsletter became an anchor. And it gave me something to do every week. It gave me something to commit to. And it gave me something to talk about. And it gave me this orbit of skills to expand around it, right? If you write a newsletter, what are some things you can improve? You can learn how to make a website. You can learn how SEO works. You can learn design because you'll need a logo. You can learn how funnels work. You can learn, you know, how to embed videos, right? Like just endless possibilities of things to learn. And in hindsight, again, I didn't know this at the time because I was just following the fun. I was just hopping from lily pad to lily pad. I'm like, ooh, design sounds cool. Like, let me like fire up a website. Oh, that was fun. Like, oh, let's start blogging a little bit more. Like, oh, we need a new logo. Like, let me go learn Figma. And I just kind of kept popping around these lily pads and just with, hey, if you could see me now, I just have this like, you know, smile on my face because it just, it was so, I still do this now, seven years later. I really follow things that make me come alive. Yeah, I, I love that. And I know that whatever mutual friends, Paul Millard, he, he kind of talks about sometimes about how so much of the dialogue a lot of times around work, is, there's always this implied impression that work needs to be hard and that it, it needs to, you need to struggle at least a little bit for it. And, you know, certainly when you work hard, there, there is a, a struggle that can be involved and it, and it can mm -hmm. be challenging. That's and even, but, but even fun things can be challenging too, for that matter. But what I love about what you talked about is that even before you pursued this path, you were already looking, as we talked about with these side projects of pursuing things that were interesting. And even though they didn't necessarily always lead to things, it, it gave you experiences and opportunities to, to keep playing and keep learning. And, and it yeah. gets you to see things differently. It does. Perspective. Yeah. And it introduces you to different social circles. Well, agreed. And, and I think that is, look, cause there's so much. That's how you and I met. Well, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly right. And part of the reason why I wanted to have you on is because look, like I very much understand that the life you have or the path you've chosen to take, it may not be for everyone. But what I love about the approach you have is that. You can still do this if you want to have the job that you have, but you're just looking for more ways to uh, experiment, to try, to learn, to meet other people. And that may just even just make your day job even more enjoyable and better. It's not necessarily, oh, you only can do this if you go this path. It's like, no, we can all look for more ways to have, to explore more curiosities and, and have more fun in the work that we do.
Love that. Love that. So I used to do coaching and I used to coach executives, Wall Street executives. And I would ask them, I had this question that I would ask them. And the question was, let's say you wake up and the rich benefactor agrees to pay for 20, 20 years of all your living expenses. How do you spend an ideal, ordinary week? And you should see the reality. So first they were like, why well, I'd invest it. Like, oh, come on, come on. I'd say, I'd retort that. I'm like, you've got the best family office in the world managing it. No one can do it better. They're the best, like Michael Dell's family office, right? So you can't invest. And then I would continue to read more about investing so I could learn, you know, like keep honing my skills. I'm like, okay. I'm like, but let's do an accounting. So I would whip out a spreadsheet and I'd say, okay, you're going to sleep eight hours a night. You're going to exercise for two, spend two hours of your family, read for two hours, and then one hour with friends, right? So that's six plus eight, that's 14 plus one, that's 15. 15 hours. Okay. What are you going to do with another, other nine? And they would, you know, they would comb their brain. One, one person like, reluctantly is like, I take a cooking class, right? And another is like, I guess I would learn photography. Uh, another one was like, I'd go snowboarding more. They're like, why aren't you doing that now? What, and, and it is this trap of delayed gratification, right? It's like, well, if I just work a little harder, then I could snowboard all I want, you know, in 10 years. Yeah, guess what? Those 10 years aren't promised. Your knees, your lower back. I challenge people. I challenge your, list, your listeners to say, what does my ideal ordinary week look like? Not living in Bali and partying it up or yucking it up with your friends, but like, it's just an average Monday, right? What does your average Monday look like? Your dream average Monday, right? You probably have your coffee, you might exercise and, Oh, commute. No, I not, 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 don't want that thing commute. Okay. How do I extricate myself from a commute? Right. Cause that's a big deal. Right. And starting to come back <laughs> as we know in LA commuting is back. Uh, and then you're like, oh, like cooking class, cooking class here again. Right? How do you incorporate a cooking class into your week? Right. It's not that hard. It's not that expensive. You don't have to wait until you're 59 and a half year old and start drawing on your IRA. Right. Take the cooking class now. So I encourage your listeners to think about this ideal, ordinary week exercise. I love that. And as a follow-up to that, I, I, we am bringing this back to what we talked about in the beginning. One of the things that at least I have found and what I have really had to think more deeply about is for the majority of my life, particularly with respect to my job and my career, it has always been in the service of working for something else. And then once I got to that point, it was always, okay, now I got to work towards the next thing so that I can be prepared for the next thing. And it wasn't honestly until probably after leaving Deloitte and going to Salesforce, where I realized I had basically optimized my career in such a way that I had achieved all the things that I wanted. And now I was at this place where I didn't have a next thing because mm -hmm. I had gotten, you know, I just, I'm not saying I was at the end of like my journey to success, but I had this, that was the first time in my life where I hadn't indexed to delayed gratification towards something. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I was lost for a while because I just had never, I had never been in a position before where I wasn't working for the next thing. And I was fortunate enough within the first year of being at Salesforce, I ended up getting promoted, which was great. But then I, I got to a point again where I was like, okay, so, so now what? And for me, at least that's when I started thinking more about the give get ratio. And that's when it really started to click for me 
that to the point that you had, you know, life's life is life's not guaranteed. And yeah. it, if uh, that's not to say that you shouldn't think about the future, but if you're always working towards something else, uh, what I was realizing was that I was missing what was right in front of me. And totally. once I started thinking more about what was right in front of me, that for me was the, the aha moment where I started experimenting more and trying things and a number of things that if I hadn't done, I wouldn't be in the position of where I am Absolutely. right now. So. Absolutely. And that's where, you know, follow the fun comes in, right? You can't delay joy, right? You can't like yeah. put joy in a bottle. Like joy is use yeah. it or lose it, right? Like, yeah. is it right now? There's a there's this great quote uh, by Dan Harris, who wrote the book, 10% Happier. He said, yeah. one foot in the present and one foot in the past. Well, one foot in the future and one foot in the past, you're pissing on the present moment. Yeah. I tie that quote with something that the philosopher Schopenhauer says, where, where he talks about goals. And he said, goals are, I'm paraphrasing, but they're a perpetual source of unhappiness. Because if you get the goal, you are bored. Yeah. Right? So you yeah. need a new goal. Yeah. And if you don't get the goal... You're frustrated. Yeah. So you, so goals by definition leave you in a constant state of frustration or boredom. Yep. Yeah. And that's where the delayed gratification really, really can set in. But I want to point out now, like, you know, you and I quit our job, we, you know, sure. like this is not what we're saying here is not, or what I'm saying is not like go quit your job to find that joy. No, that what I'm challenging you is to find the joy in your daily, in your like mundane, in the, in the everydayness of life. Can you find joy in the everydayness of life? And that is actually, you know, look, if you have a horrible boss and you work investment banking hours, like it's going to be hard. Sure. But don't believe that if you take the path that Al and I are on, that it's going to smack you in the face and be like, here's the joy. Because sure. if, if it wasn't there in investment banking, it will not be there in entrepreneurship. Sure. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. So talk to me about a little bit more about Rad Reads and what was the joy you found in, in Rad Reads? Mm. Ooh, what is the joy in Rad Reads? It, it has, it, so it's been seven years. So it started as an email newsletter and that kind of anchors it. And by the way, everyone should go subscribe to the newsletter, but it started as a newsletter. And I think it was, at first it was a creative outlet. That's it. Just a little safe creative outlet. I wasn't like, I was just summarizing other articles. So it, was, it started as a safe creative outlet. Then it evolved into, hey, telling his story. So blog, mostly blogging. That's actually how you found Rad Reads was through one of uh, blog posts on career change. So then it evolved into blogging and then it evolved into teaching or service. And again, the teaching was like very productivity oriented. And so to step back for the first two years of Rad Reads, it made no money. Then I started, people were asking me to be a life coach and I did one-on-one -on -one coaching and that basically covered my living expenses. So kind of threw that whole 18 month framework out the window. And then after I did the coaching. I kind of got bored of that. And I started to teach courses on productivity, specifically on a tool called Notion. This was three, two and a half years ago. And then in the past year, that course has morphed into something that kind of like takes all of these values. And it's really like combines like radical self-awareness, radical prioritization and radical action, right? Like how do you 
do, how do you live a life that is extremely self-aware where you know what to focus on and you know how to take action and productivity and mindset and money, all career, all fall into that. And the course is now this like beautiful, I'm, I'm really just proud of it. It's this beautiful concoction of part my story, part my theory, and just a community around it. Uh, almost 600 students have taken it since we launched it. Yeah. And I will say too, very transparently, the, your, your newsletter was super helpful to me as I was going on my own exploration and journey with making my own transition. And, and that was part of the reason why I wanted to bring you on to talk about it. And one of the, I know one of the concepts that you talk a lot about of is this idea behind $10,000 work. And I want, would love for you to maybe share a little bit more about it. And I guess the frame for all this. So one of the things I often think about is this idea that time is a reflection of your priorities, right? Mm -hmm. And I think the times in my life where I've had to make changes or had to, or have gone found aha moments are the times when I, I've had to take a look at what my priorities were and really reflect on them. And then taking a look at either my calendar or the things that I've done and, and, and to try to see if there was maybe some alignment there, but just framing that would love for you to maybe talk a little bit more about what $10,000 work yeah. our work is and, and how we can think about that in our own lives. Absolutely. So a quote that I often reflect is busyness is the absence of priorities, right? Everyone on this listening to this episode is busy and busyness is an absence of priorities. And so I really, um, I really wanted to, I think one of the most powerful kind of ways to live, you know, the action part of your life is to have focus, right? And is to be focused on like what really like what you want and what might hold you back. And again, not necessarily in goals, but just like being able to move things forward, right? And so I had always, I love, you know, the productivity slash finance guy in me loves to think about things in terms of leverage, right? Like you could say you wanted to buy a house, you know, you could go plunk down, you know, we're in LA. So, you know, half a million dollars, a million dollars for a house, or you could get leverage, by borrowing a, you know, putting 20% down and borrowing 80%. There's a lot of ways to get leverage. And I think of leverage as a one, it's an amplifier of whatever it is that you do, right? So the matrix, it's a take, if for those of you might be familiar with the Eisenhower matrix, which is another prioritization framework, I found the Eisenhower matrix very unhelpful because all of the tasks fall in one quadrant. And so you're like, okay, now what do I do? And so the way the $10,000 per hour work matrix works and we call it 10K work as an abbreviation is on the vertical axis, you have low skill and high skill. And then the horizontal axis, you have low leverage and high leverage, but just go through. And then you go 10, a hundred, a thousand and 10K. And, and right away there's global audiences. This is not about the dull, like getting paid $10,000 per hour. Just think of it in terms of multiplying. So I always joke $10 work. You can do it hungover, right? You had a long night out with friends. It's Saturday morning. What do you do? You go through emails, you color code your calendar, you, you know, shift things around in your to-do list. Like you, you know, download your Readwise highlights. Like that's $10 work. $100 work is low skill, high leverage. So you're baking leverage into your process. So I think of this as like basically the land of productivity, like superhuman, the email app or text expanders or tweet threading software. It's like, sure, like it, it will make you mo more productive at the margins. But that's efficiency, not effectiveness, right? And I always joke, the ultimate test is like, pick your favorite entrepreneur, Elon Musk. Do you think Elon Musk uses superhuman? No. Do you think Elon Musk knows how to use GTD? Hell no. 
right? He's got such bigger things to think about, right? That's so trivial in his sphere surface of, of problems. Thousand dollar, that's the bread and butter. You're a software engineer, you're a lawyer, you're a consultant, you're a marketer, right? You have a skill. You usually got that skill through degrees or through years of experience, presumably both. And you convert that skill to money through to money through a wage usually or a salary. And usually people stop there because that's a good life. If you're an experienced investor, you know, and you're charging a premium for your skill, you're going to live a good life. Then there's this next category, the 10K category, which is high skill, high leverage. So think about that software engineer. Best, they could be an amazing coder, but if they want to take a year off, what happens? Right? In, uh, income dries up, right? They're still chasing, there's no leverage in that skill. So what could that software engineer do, right? They could have an apprenticeship program or hire an intern. They could write great documentation. They could do lunch and learns for their company. They could write blog posts for their industry. They could go speak at conferences to get awareness out on, you know, some solution that they have. They could submit things to GitHub. I don't know how software engineering works, but they could start a podcast about it, right? There's so many ways that they could convert that one-on-one to one skill to a one-to-many skill, right? It's the, if you're an entrepreneur, it's the difference on working in your business, like generating the sales and the revenue and working on your business, which is zooming out, thinking about the strategy, think about the vision, trying to anticipating roadblocks, recruiting, so on. So those tasks have so much leverage. And it hit me one day, Al. Actually, it hit me this week. Last week, we were on vacation. We went to Lake Arrowhead. And my team specifically asked me, we do not want to see you. I have a team of six. We do not want to see you on Slack. We do not want to see you in Notion. And we do not want to see you on email. You set the example for us. And we have what we call off-grid vacations, which you're not expected to check it in. And so as the business owner, there are a few things that I have, like I need to approve payroll on a certain day. So I actually, I do need to log in for like 15 minutes every day for those types of things to keep the business moving. And during that week, our course was still in session, a course modeled after my personality. We had nine sessions for 182 students. And I only checked my email five minutes a day. That's when I was like, oh man, that is leverage. I love that. I love that. And it's a long, uh, it's, it's a long time coming, but I'm, I'm grateful that you've been able to, to, to master that and to put it into practice. One question I do have for you, because if for you to be able to get this kind of leverage, it certainly has taken you some time and you also are, you know, obviously in a, an entrepreneurship kind of lens, but what is the right blend? Is there a right blend for folks out there who are working as a consultant, as a marketer, as a lawyer, et cetera, of how much, look, like not everyone can, not all of our hours can be devoted to 10K work, mm-hmm. right? But yeah. is there, or how should people think about that in terms of the breakdown? Because, you know, one on one hand, you do need to be thoughtful about how you spend your time. And on the other hand, Sometimes your boss tells you things you yeah. have to do, and that's just the reality of, of, of being an adult and, and having, a, totally. having a day job. It's an excellent question, Al. And I'd say first that there are two dimensions to look at it from. One is just where you are in your career, right? If you're the, if you're the CEO, 
or if you're the new college graduate, obviously, you know, the CEO is paid to do $10,000 work, 10K work. And the new college analyst is paid to do $10 work, right? But that doesn't mean that the CEO doesn't have to do $10 work. And that doesn't mean that the college grad can't do 10K work. So I would tell everyone, it's a very simple way to start with 10K work, is 25 minutes a day. Everyone has 25 minutes a day. Cut out your YouTube, cut out your social, cut out Reddit. You have 25 minutes a day. And then this is what you do. I want you to conduct a visualization. You could do many different flavors of this, but let's do a very simple one. What do I want my life to look like in five years? Right? And I want you to write an essay about yourself, a story, and just say where you are, like, what are your kids like if you have kids? What are you wearing? How do you spend your days? What are you eating? What's your fitness level? What are your parents doing? What did you do for vacation, right? And you start to paint this image of what your life looks like in five years. That would be your, that's a perfect example of 10K work. Because let me, I bet I'm doing an informal poll on your audience. I bet that 98% of the listeners have never done something like that. What a crazy thought. Yeah. yeah. So then you can keep playing with that. So a bunch of themes will come out from that, right? You could do the same thing on your career. You could do the same thing for 10 years. You could do the same thing for one year. And as you start to do that, you, these little threads will come out, right? So one of them for me is like, I want to take annual, like I want to take two annual surf trips a year, like big trips to like cool exotic locales. What am I waiting for? I don't think about that. That's, that's 10K work on, the, on my personal side of things. Why I can do that this year. I'm fortunate to have the means and the time to do that this year. If I don't sit and realize that I want it and be committed to doing it, it's never going to happen. Yeah. And so my 10K work on the personal life is how can K guarantee that he takes two exotic surfing trips per year? Right. And then I could translate that into the business side. Right. Um, one of my questions is how do I make myself replaceable? So I'll make myself replaceable. I need to recruit a bunch of people or I need to download my brain. There's a project at our workspace called Download Case Brain because it's been such a solo business for so long. So the 10K work is like, what are the most important parts of Case brain that we need to be downloaded? How do we systematize that? How do we make it easy for people to query? What's the use case of it, right? Then you get to these more pragmatic questions. But 25 minutes a day and that's it. If you just do 25 minutes of strategic thinking on your life and your career for the rest of your life, you will be unstoppable and anything that you want to come true will probably come true. I love that. And I know we're wrapping up here, but I, I want to give you a chance because you teased it out a little bit just about talking about your course SYP, mm -hmm. but tell us just a little bit about it. And if people want to sign up or they want to know more about it, tell us where they can go. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. So the course is a live cohort based course. And we basically help high professionals, high performing professionals lead more productive, examined, and joyful lives. So it's this great mashup between productivity, self-awareness, and happiness, right? It's kind of this really powerful triangle that intersects those three things. It's a cohort-based course with uh, a supporting team of mentors and teaching assistants of 17. We run it three times a year for four to six weeks, depending on which edition you purchase. 
The next one is in May, but if you go to radreads.co slash courses, you can get on the waiting list for the next one. And then we also have an alumni community, which has six monthly trainings a month. And it's kind of like this mix, again, of group productivity coaching, life coaching, and career coaching, kind of all moshed, mashed together into like a beautiful little sandwich. That's great. Well, Kehi, uh, founder of uh, Rad Reads, thank you so much for joining me today and for sharing your journey a little bit more about 10K work and a little bit about SYP. Thanks for coming on. Hi, everyone. LD here. And thank you so much for listening to the MBA Insider Podcast. If you liked what you heard, make sure to head over to Apple Podcasts and to write a review. It will only take 15 seconds. I'd also love to hear what you've been listening to on the podcast and any suggestions you have for how we can improve. Find me on LinkedIn or head over to mbaschooled.com backslash podcast.